Donald Trump called him tough. Rush Limbaugh read one of his articles live on his radio show. Ann Coulter tweeted that article to her one and a half million followers and declared, every sentence is perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, your host, former chief editor of the Jewish Press, Elliot Resnick. Welcome to the Elliot Resnick Show. Yeshivish and Hasidish communities proudly talk about keeping the influences of the secular world away from their homes. Unfortunately, these influences have infiltrated these communities in various guises nonetheless. One of them is the guise of chesed. We now have organizations and so-called experts who claim they only want to help people, but their definition of helping people is essentially convincing them to reject their heritage and embrace the values of 21st century progressivism. Today, I'd like to focus on two examples of this phenomenon, encouraging divorce and encouraging late marriage. Rabbi Hillel Handler, a longtime activist who testified in Congress in support of the nomination of Judge Robert Bork to the Supreme Court in 1987 on behalf of the Agurus Harabanim, drew my attention to these two secular campaigns, which have actually received generous space and positive coverage in various from publications. Let me address them one at a time. But first, welcome Rabbi Handler to the program. I'm pleased to be here. Nice to see you, Elliot. Thank you. Likewise. You recently forwarded me a picture of a full-page ad in a from right-wing magazine by Shalom Task Force. The top three quarters of the ad contain a checklist, which is called the Healthy Relationship Checklist. The list has eight items, and next to each item is a box to check off. Let me read them for the audience. I am treated with respect. I feel heard and cared for. I have a separate identity with unique needs and interests. I can take time and space for myself. I can express an opinion even if it means disagreeing. I can change my mind. I can set limits that feel right to me. I feel safe in my relationship at all times. Now, below the list is the question, what if I'm unsure? And then the ad declares, everyone deserves a safe and healthy relationship. Take the first step. We'll help you figure out your next. And following that is a phone number. Now, you emailed this to me and to several editors of major from newspapers and magazines, decrying the publication of this ad, arguing that it encourages divorce. How does it encourage divorce, in your opinion? Well, it's very simple. If you have a woman who's very emotional, women are more emotional than men. And in a marriage situation, you're always going to have differences of opinion, arguments, sometimes screaming, sometimes don't talk to each other. You're so upset. And at that vulnerable moment, if you read an ad like this, I'm treated with respect. Aha! That's right. I don't have respect. I get no respect. I'm not heard. I'm not cared for. That's true. The Sholem Task Force totally misrepresents who they are and what their basis is. They present themselves to the Jewish community as Sholem. Sholem to an Orthodox Jew means Sholem Bayit. When you say Sholem Task Force, it sounds like they're involved in helping make Sholem between men and women. But there's nothing of the kind. I was listening to an interview with uh, Esther Williams, who was one of the founders of the Sholem Task Force. And she was explaining what the mission of the Sholem Task Force is. And she explained it as follows. She said there was a Dr. Lightman out in Queens who noticed that some women who were bringing, he was a pediatrician, who were bringing their children into his office had bruises. And he asked them what happened. And they said, my husband beat me. So 
he spoke to Esther Williams, and they decided that there must be a problem in the Jewish community of husbands beating up their wives. So they made this organization, and they got funding from the Office of Violence Against Women from the federal government. The latest thing I could see was they got one and a half million dollars. Now, for that one and a half million dollars, in order to justify their grant, they had to meet a goal of 240 Jewish victims. That was required. Now, what do you require to get that funding of a one and a half million dollars by the grant program of the federal government? You have to find 200. They have to show torture and 40 women who are benefiting from the organization, essentially. 240 Jewish victims of domestic violence are required in order to justify the funding. And of course, in this report by the audit of the Office of Violence Against Women, they said that you're not doing the job. You didn't provide us with 240 yet. You have to get on the stick and get moving. This was a few years ago. So the problem for the Sholem task force was, how do we get 240 victims beaten up by their husbands? We don't have that many. It doesn't happen. So what they did was they decided, well, we'll broaden the definition of what constitutes violence. And now the definition is a pattern of abusive behavior used by one partner to instill fear, gain power, control over the other. In other words, if you're the husband and she's the wife, you have power and control over the other. Okay, it could be physical, it could be psychological, it could be emotional, financial, digital. Oh my God, everything. They really broaden the definition. So that's how they get their 240 victims. <laughs> by making everybody a victim. Okay, so this could be an innocent business. I mean, if you really feel this way, I would, if I were running such an organization, I'd say, okay, well, maybe there are some problems. Let's send out a mailing to all the rabbis, because usually people have a problem. They talk with their rabbis. They have a relationship with their rabbi, or maybe to some psychologist, and tell them, hey, we're available to help you out in case there's a problem, because one of the things that Sholem Task Force does is they give you legal services to help you get your divorce and to make all the arrangements and how you're going to split the money and with the children and what's going to happen. They have a whole legal department on how to get divorced. Okay, so maybe there are some extreme situations. You let the rabbis know. You let the psychiatrists know. If they run into a real serious situation, take care of it and we'll help you. I can understand that. But to have a full-page ad in a newspaper that's written for the religious community and to talk about domestic violence in this broad way, which you just read, are you treated with respect, time and space for myself, all kinds of things that people might at the margin feel is a problem, and to blow up these complaints and legitimize them and make it a part of the mainstream. This is criminal. What you're doing is you're creating a problem where there is not a serious problem. And it's not just that you're creating this problem. You're even going beyond. You're having a kala workshop. In other words, we have the kala teachers who sit down with the women before they get married and they talk about what marriage is. So instead of encouraging them to talk about the greatness of marriage, how wonderful it is, how holy it is, you're going to build a family, you're going to build a Jewish community, you're going to talk about violence. You're going to talk about your husband might be an abuser. (laughs) 
So the Kali goes into a relationship instead of being optimistic, instead of feeling great about going into a relationship and says, oh my God, I might be getting involved with a monster who's going to abuse me and make my life miserable. Maybe I shouldn't get married at all. <laughs> That's what I would think if I had a workshop like this. It goes even beyond that. They have something called purple. Purple is something that they do with Hebrew schools throughout the country, teenagers. Now they're having 12 yeshiva high schools across six states participated in an eight-week training program. Can you believe this? They're not even telling the teenagers. You know, when you go on dates, you got to be careful. You know, you might be abused, all kinds of things. So you're even afraid to go on a date. So they're indoctrinating all these women, mainly, to instead of being welcoming to men and looking forward to having a marriage and go on a date and go into a relationship, they're on the defense. They're looking at this man as he's a possible monster who's going to do who knows what with me. So I don't know. Like how, how do you get marriage in such a situation? I right. mean, marriage is a difficult situation in any event That's because right. the Balatanya says that men and women are so different, there really is no match. <laughs> There really is no match. They really don't match. But listen, it happens under the chuppah. You know, there's a word ish, man, and isha, right? What right. is the difference between those two words? There's a yud in the man and there's a hey in the woman. And yud k is the name of God, of Hashem Isbora. So when right. they go under the chuppah, they link up and that magic of God involved, the tchina comes down and links them together and makes it a combination. So that's why it's not good to have too many dates. You go on too many dates, you're going to find out that there really is no match. Right. <laughs> you're really not suited for each other. So the more you know about the person, the more chances are you're going to say, oh, no, this is not right. So better not to go on dates too much. Get into the marriage. Once you're in the marriage and you're committed, you make it work. That's right. the way it should work. And also this ad encourages selfishness. I mean, there's a famous story where Jonathan Sachs used to say about the Lubavitcher Rebbe that when he was waiting to meet the Rebbe, someone in the hallway shared this story with him, how he once wrote to the Rebbe a whole long letter. I have a problem with this and I have a problem with that. And I'm depressed and I'm sad and I don't. And the Rebbe answered the letter by doing nothing else other than circling every single one of the eyes. We focus on the eye all day long. Of course, you're going to be miserable. That's a recipe for misery. So this checklist is I'm not treated with respect. I feel heard, and I feel safe, and I can take time and space for myself. You're encouraging selfishness. And yeah, people will be more miserable in life in general and also in their marriages if they're thinking about themselves all day long. So, and also, I think the whole ad is built on a secular bias that women being alone is perfectly good and natural and wonderful. And therefore, at the slightest hint or sign of a bad marriage, just leave because you don't need a man. There's nothing important about being married. It could be that a woman, maybe her husband doesn't always respect her opinion. Okay, so therefore what? Therefore, you're going to encourage her to start being miserable in her marriage? Not every marriage is wonderful. Sometimes men are not as good as they should be. And of course, the men should be told to be as good husbands as they should be. But those start encouraging the women to feel dissatisfied. It doesn't make any sense. And then things change from day to day. One day he's a saint and one day he's a sinner. You know, it happens to all of us, right? We all say on Yom Kippur, we're going to make the resolution. We're going to be perfect this year. And then <laughs> it doesn't happen, right? We go back the next year again. So you emailed the editors of, I think, Ami, FJJ, Yatet, Hamadia. Did any of them answer you? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, Yatet is still printing the Shalom Task Force. Because in order Yatet. to understand... 
Yeah. That's the most right wing of all of them, I think. I just checked it this week. And I was very disappointed. And I emailed them and said, well, you're still doing this feminist garbage? You see, the word shalom really misleads people into thinking that this is something very positive. Who can argue with being treated with respect, being cared for? Who can argue with such things? It's like being against motherhood, the flag, and apple pie. Can right. you argue the, with that? Right. But the ad should be directed at men. Men should respect their wives. Men should treat their wives nicely. You shouldn't encourage dissatisfaction on the women's side. What's the point of that? What, what's the end point? What are, you, what are you trying to lead to exactly? The problem is there should not be an ad that's directed at the general public. Yeah, men should have their own shiurim to treat their wives wonderfully. Women should have a shiurim to treat their men wonderfully. I mean, you could have an article from, uh, they have these articles by the uh, psychologists. Uh, they can have a column, be nice. They do more do damage than anybody else. Do chesed. All right, but this ad is a very strong indication that we have a sick community. There's something wrong with us. It's basically an ad of Loshan Hara telling people, you are sick. You got problems. And we have the right. answer. Call us. <laughs> what is the answer, though? What's your end game? What's the answer exactly? So the woman's going to call up and they'll say, yeah, Taka, your husband's not treating you right. I think you should explore divorce, basically. Is eventually what they'll lead them to. They won't that's say it in as many words, but it's eventually what's going maybe, to lead to. No, they do say it. They said maybe it's time to get out. It says so very specifically in the ad. And not only that, they're even directed, one ad was directed at the relatives. Does your sister have a problem? So they're encouraging the sister to get involved into the marriage relationship, which is poison. Rabbi Victor Miller used to warn against that. Don't get involved in a marriage relationship. Don't stick your nose into it. You can only cause trouble. I interviewed Melanie Phillips years ago. Melanie Phillips used to be a liberal, wrote for The Guardian. She became a conservative. One reason she became a conservative, she said she was writing a story about divorce, and the government statistics showed that almost always, unless the, the marriage is completely you know, wacky, I don't know, he's, you know, he's beating her up every single night or something, except in the most extreme cases, the kids are better off if you stay married. And she found at a certain point, I think when she was writing the story, people were upset at her for reporting the government statistics. She said, I'm just reporting statistics. And later on, the government started hiding their own statistics because it was more important for them to advance an agenda than to make sure the kids are actually having happy childhoods. There's an agenda about getting women divorced. It's not about helping them. There's something about... Well, they, you know, the, the feminist has this old line that a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. That's essentially, you know... A, there is a very well-hidden agenda... If you do the research, you'll find it all goes back to the Rockefellers, probably the richest people in the world. And they were always behind the agenda of population control. Too many people in the world, polluting the world. And this all goes back to the uh, famous the Reverend Thomas Malthus, a reverend no less, who published a monograph on the impossibility of feeding so many people that are being born. So we have a uh, situation where um, the first commandment of the Torah, which is pru uruvu umiluus orits, that uh, God created the world, that it should be fully populated. In other words, he created a banquet hall. The world is one huge banquet hall. There's food for everybody. Everything is prepared. And he's waiting for the guests to arrive. He wants the world to be full. You know, most of the world is empty. People don't realize that. Right. Most of the world is empty. They say uh, the whole world could fit room. into 
I think you could fit. You could build a building in Manhattan. I think they'll fit the entire world's population or something. Someone wanted the calculation. If everyone had like five feet of space right. or something, right. something so like the that. Pro- like- the problem is the economic manipulation has taken people off of the farm and off of the rural places and forced them into the city because economically they couldn't make it on the farm anymore. It's similar to what happened in the Roman Empire that the independent farmer could no longer make it being out in the farm. So they all concentrated in the cities. We're going a bit far afield, though. I want to go back to some of the other items that the ad you sent me and another topic which you were sending me and some other people also a few months back, uh, which was the proper age of marriage. Chazal states very, very clearly that a boy should marry at 18, I think the latest, latest 20. And the reason they give this recommendation, or they or the Mepharshim give this recommendation, is very practical and down-to-earth, if I'm not mistaken. Essentially, they felt it's very hard for a man to remain morally pure if he's not married by that age. Roughly 18, maybe max 20. Now, if this was true 2,000 years ago, it's doubly and triply true today in our sexually promiscuous and technologically advanced society. And yet, amazingly, instead of encouraging early marriage in accordance with a clear statement of Chazal, you noted a few months ago that a major firm of publication ran a long article encouraging young men and women to get married even later than they currently do. That was How do you Mishpucha un- magazine. Right. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's, magazine. it's blatantly anti-Torah advice. How could such advice be published in a Torah magazine? Well, the problem is that she's a social worker. That's where the problem starts. So right away, she's involved in uh, in college and uh, has all the evolution in, in her head and all the Malthusian ideas. All these ideas are somewhere buried in her mind, and it's coming out. Right now, the Rosh Hashivas, this past week or two, got together, the Rosh Hashiva of Slobodka and the Rosh Hashiva in Lakewood, and they decided that from now on, they're going to cancel the fourth year of Besamedrish. They're not going to allow the boys to stay in learning the fourth year. They're going to encourage them to go get married. And one of the considerations they had when they discussed it was that, well, if they get too married too early, there's going to be more divorces in our community. So they did the research. They asked around. They said, no, it's not true. That is a lie. There are not more divorces when people get married early. As a matter of fact, I have explained this many times to people that a tree, when it's young, can be bent in every direction. You know, they have these trees. You, you see when they grow the trees, they have two ropes on two sides and they have a stick right. on two sides to move them in a certain direction because when they're young, you can bend them. You can be flexible. The older you get, the less flexible you are, the more set you are in your ways. And you can't adjust to a wife. And a wife can't adjust to a husband. She's got her way of doing things. I can't change. This is the way I've been. And it's not very conducive to marriage to have two inflexible people having a tug of war with each other as to who's going to be the one that's going to be right. When you're young and you're 18 years old, you're a young kid. You're not a kid, actually. You're already 18 years old. I believe that Admiral Nelson in the British Navy was somewhere around 14 years old when he commanded a ship. He was a commander. So uh, it can be done. So when you're 18 years old, you've already got a lot of Gemara under your belt. You've got some life experience. And uh, you go under the chuppah and you're committed to marriage. It's a commitment. And you make it work. It's also very important that uh, you notice when the area of getting of divorce, you'll notice that divorce is a very complicated operation. You have to go to a rabbi, and he has to do this, and he has to write the divorce. You can't just do it a snap divorce, go to Reno, Nevada, 
and get divorced, you know, instantly. It doesn't happen in the Jewish community. It's done on purpose. I remember the story of the rabbi of Debrecen in Borough Park. He was a major Paisik, and a couple came to him, and they wanted to get divorced. So he asked them a very important question. Do you have any children? Because everybody knows if there are children involved, that is a disaster. The divorce between two people who have no children yet, you can make it work a little. It's also not good because it says in the Gemara that a woman does not make a bris with a husband, does not make a full contract only with her first husband. Once it's a second husband, it's not the same thing anymore. But all right, it can go. But with a child, now this child gets torn to pieces. The mother says that your father is a rush, horrible. The father says your mother is no good. And he is torn and he's ruined for life. So they said to the Debitina Rav, we have a child, small child. So he says, okay, come back with the child before I finish this discussion. So he brought back the child. He said, okay, give me the child. He put the child on his lap and he said, my dear child, your parents are thinking of getting divorced. It's going to be very hard for you. You're going to have to grow up. You're going to have to go to yeshiva. And you'll be different from all the other children. They have parents. You won't have parents. You're going to be torn. You're going to grow up. Who knows what's going to happen to you, whether you'll be, you have a good role model. And he gave the whole picture of the child, how he's going to develop, what a miserable life he's going to have. And then when he got finished, the two parents said, you know something, let's reconsider. <laughs> and that was the purpose and why he told them to bring in the child. So uh, this is very important. It's a mindset more than anything. Again, it's a, it's a secular bias. You hear us in the secular world all the time. Oh, we got married too young. We weren't thinking. I wasn't mature enough. We grew apart, you know, and that, that's just the way it is. And then we get divorced. It's an attitude. I was reading Betty Friedan's famous feminist book, uh, The Feminine Mystique. And in that book, she's complaining that half the marriages in America in her days in the 1950s or early 60s were teenage marriages. Non-Jewish marriages, half of marriages in the country were girls who were, who were before 20 years old. And was the divorce rate so high in the 1950s? No. So it's just it's a matter of your, your culture and your values and your determination to stay married and what you think a marriage is all about. Because when half the marriages in the country were teenage marriages, the divorce rate was not high. So it, again, it's, it's a secular bias. And people just say they buy it lock, stock, and barrel, and they repeat it to everyone else. Well, we had the tradition of the shotgun marriage. And if somebody uh, seduced a girl, and the father would come with a shotgun and say, okay, you broke it, now you own it. <laughs> right. And he said, if you don't, I'm going to blast you with this shotgun. And they worked out very well. Those marriages, too. You know, marriage is a, a responsibility. The bottom line of marriage is what Hashem made it for. The purpose of marriage is pru uruvu, be fruitful and multiply. The purpose of marriage is it's a mechanism that was a brilliant mechanism that uh, God made that the world should continue, that mankind should not be extinct. And so he made it in such a way that you feel compelled to get married. He didn't want to make it something that's voluntary. If it's voluntary, well, maybe you'll be too busy to get married. And all these people will be too busy, like they are in Greenwich Village and in Manhattan today. They go out to restaurants all the time because they don't have anybody to make supper. And they don't get married. And people yeah. are not married, even if they're promiscuous, they don't have children. Or they get married at 35, 45, and they get divorced anyway. So this notion like, oh, if you're older, you won't get divorced. It's just nonsense. No, there's no point in getting married. What is the point of getting married? Yeah, for them. Yeah, what you're right, you, if you have no values. It's a, it's a, it's a fiscal liability. 
that you can be sued. So right. what's the point? I mean, if you're not looking at it as something that's holy, that's something that God wants you to do, if you don't have that attitude, then the whole marriage is just a matter of, uh, it's a legalized prostitution, basically, is what it is in the mind of many people. So I say, why bother with the legality? Just do the prostitution straight. Right. So this all has to do with atheism that has pervaded right. our society. When marriage was a holy procedure, you understood that it's before God and you are accountable to God for what you're doing here. And they used to make the Christians have this thing in health and in non-health for good. What did I forget the whole catechism right. that they had? It ends up till death do us part, right? Till death do us part. That was the way it was. It was and it was a good thing. It was a good thing. It's like a ksuba, like we read, Lahavdu. This is a commitment we're making to each other. So the issue of marriage is loyalty. Loyalty right. to one another, no matter what. No matter what the difficulty is, we're going to be together and we're going to be loyal to each other. Now, once you have this issue of loyalty, then the couple can have confidence and can go forward in their lives without constantly worrying that they might lose their husband or lose their wife to somebody else. And that's why we have something in our Jewish community, which used to be in the non-Jewish community, separation of the sexes. We have a public school that the yeshiva took over here in Borough Park, here on 14th Avenue. On 53rd Street, there's an entrance that says girls. On 54th Street, there's an entrance that says boys. Separate stairways. In a public school. In a public school, yes. And in the old workplace environment, you had the uh, secretarial area. The women were secretaries. I want to ask you one more question about your testimony for on behalf of Robert Bork. But before I ask you the question, I just want to quickly share. In, I front, just read of in, a... Biden, in front of Joe Biden. He was the chairman. Right, 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 right. He was the chairman. Anyways, but quickly before I ask you about that, I just want to mention, I just read in a Lubavitch publication, maybe just two weeks ago, they found some notes that someone took at Farbrengen like 40, 50 years ago, where the Lubavitch ever says, he, really, people should be getting married younger. Because the Lubavitch, they get married 23, 24, like they get married everywhere else. He said, he really would like to encourage boys to get married at 20. He said, the only reason I'm not going to make a big deal about it is because I personally got married a little bit later and I feel a little bit uncomfortable talking about this and encouraging it when I myself didn't do it for whatever reason. But he actually said that he really ideally feels that boys should get married at 20. Well, well, Chaim Tanievsky, when he heard that his grandson was not getting married, he was going to do the Litvisha thing and keep on learning. So late, he took a taxi to Jerusalem, went over to his grandson and said, you get married now at 18. Don't put it off. So he asked wow. him a question. Zaydi, you got married at age 23 or 24. So he said, I started at 18. Nobody wanted me. <laughs> so they say that the reason was because Rabbi Yashib's daughter was only 12 years old or something like that. And she uh -huh. had to come of age because she was his right. zivuk. So he got right. married uh -huh. to her later. But that's what he said. He said, smiling, nobody wanted me. It's not for lack of trying. Right. Interesting. Okay, so your testimony in front of Joe Biden, who was the head of the committee for the Supreme Court nominees. First I attacked him. First I attacked him. You can get to that in a second. But I guess in general, describe what, why were you testifying on behalf of Judge Bork? Well, I was your motivations? on behalf of Judge Bork because I felt that we desperately need a conservative judge who's going to set America back on the right track again because the Supreme Court was doing all kinds of insane things and destroying the fabric of society. 
This is 35 years ago. So already back yeah. then things were going insane. Well, they made the abortion decision, if you recall, Roe versus Wade, right. which basically destroyed marriage. Said you can have abortions. So uh, you don't have to get married. You can just uh, have your cake and eat it too, as they say. You could just run around and uh, do whatever you want, you know. And then until then, you, when, no when you couldn't do an abortion, if you had intimate relations with a woman and she would have a, a baby, you had to take responsibility. You had to get married. You couldn't fool around. But now you can do whatever you want. You have the uh, birth control pill. You have abortion. You have all kinds of things that you can fool around with, you know. So right. uh, all these things militate against population. It's population control. I think behind all these crazy transgender, homosexual, LGBT, maybe one of the secret agendas is population control. Because if you can have LGBT, you're not going to have children, right? Right. So that's why they're pushing so hard. One of the reasons that Viktor Orban of Hungary is being shunned by the European Union is because he made a rule. You cannot teach in the schools of Hungary anything about LGBT and all this stuff. He wants to encourage people to get married and have families. And that is totally against the policy of the European Union in Brussels. They right. want people to get involved with these kinds of relationships. They want population control. Were people surprised to see a rabbi testifying in 87 on behalf of Bork? Was that unusual back then? Or what was the reaction? Well, uh, actually, um, Joe Biden's office called me and told me that my appearance was canceled. I was supposed to appear with the head of the Council of Presidents of Jewish Organizations. And both he and I got calls from Joe Biden's office that your testimony has been canceled. You could submit it in writing. So uh, I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was invited by Republicans side. They wanted to have a testimony of the Jews because, if you recall, they were attacking Bork as being an anti-Semite. So the Republicans wanted to counter that by bringing in two prominent Jewish organizations. So how come I'm being canceled by Biden by the Democrats? I said, I smell a rat. I'm going to show up anyway. So I showed up and I saw posted on the door. Sure enough, there I am, one o'clock, Rabbi Handler and then the other guy from the Council of Presidents. But the other guy didn't show up. He was too naive, even though he was a lawyer. He wasn't sharp enough. He didn't smell the rat. So I showed up and I was all alone. Ted Kennedy, who was on the uh, committee, took one look at me and quickly made his exit. He said, nice to see you, Rabbi, and he ran out. He didn't, want to be, he didn't want to be up there when I was testifying. You know, it would be very embarrassing for him. He was saying anti-Semite. So that's what happened. I spent the first five minutes attacking Joe Biden and telling him, you can hear it on C-SPAN, it's still available, that, uh, you know, I think it's very disgusting that you uh, fraudulently told me that I'm not supposed to appear today. You know, it was a lie. And if you claim it was only your staff, you should fire them. I went on for five minutes. He said, well, Rabbi, you're here. We'll give you another five minutes to make your opening statement. <laughs> and after I finished, they got me in the hallway and they apologized. They said, don't apologize. He did it on purpose, please. Don't apologize. You, you, you testified, I think, for a long time. I once read your testimony. It's like 45 minutes. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it was uh, Every senator gets five minutes to ask me a question. And I get five minutes, to, I think, to answer. I don't know how it works there. So I had, it was 45 minutes. There were like 13 senators there. But uh, the uh, New Hampshire Republican, the others, they were very happy with my testimony. They liked it. I wonder if that was one of the first times that from Jews and rabbis, 
started testifying and siding with the Republicans because back then in the 50s or 60s, Democrats were just as moral as the Republicans. It's only around then, maybe the 70s and 80s, and now, now it's super clear that the Republicans started embracing traditional values and the Democrats started running away from traditional values. No, the Republicans and, didn't start embracing traditional values. They never left the traditional okay, values. Right, it's a better way of putting it. Right. You go into the 50s, you had the Eisenhower administration. The 50s were the high point of America. The uh, people made good money. Everybody had the American dream. You could have a house, a reasonably priced house, and you were able to afford uh, to have your wife not work. Wives didn't work in the 50s. There was something called a homemaker. And that's an right. obsolete term today. It's no more homemakers. Now the wives have to go work because Lyndon Johnson imposed the great society. He raised the tax rates to pay for his programs. And the taxes went so high that half of your money was taken away from you and your wife had to work to make up for the half that was missing. So that drove the women into the workplace, which is, by the way, another way that they limited population. The women are in the workplace. They tend to have less children. Who made the decision at a Gosvar Bonham that you or anyone should testify on behalf of Bork? Oh, well, that was Rabbi Ginsburg, Oliver Shaw. Rabbi Ginsburg, we're very close to him. Uh, we used to do a lot of things to Rabbi Ginsburg because in those days, as you observed very accurately, the Jewish community among the general non-Jewish public was known for supporting abortion and gay rights and all kinds of horrible things, immoral things. We right. were in the lead. And when you thought about reformed Jews, that's what they stood for. The fact that the Orthodox Jewish community was against these things was not well known. And one of the things that we were involved in with Rabbi Ginsburg was to publicize the fact that the Orthodox Jewish community does not support this kind of immorality and atheism. Right, right. All right, that does it for us. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing to it and giving it a good rating and a nice review if you're so inclined. I hope you enjoyed the episode and have a great day or a great night, depending on when you're listening to this podcast.